0: you could be seated and we'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry at this time and just as a reminder following the service we're going to have uh, what we call a family meeting and uh, if you are a member considering membership interested in our church this would be you'd be more than welcome to stay and have sandwiches with us as we just go through a variety of bullet points discussing and upgrading or not upgrading but updating things going on in the life of the church so that'll be immediately following the service and then following that, uh, we need um, probably most of the guys here to move some stuff out of one room and into a bunch of other rooms, and it'll go really fast. And uh, Cassie's going to boss us around. Cassie's, you know, Cat, no, Cassie's going to tell us what to do. But guys, just after the, and I'll remind you, after the family meeting, if I can just get your, your mighty um, cross-bought biceps to work for a moment. That would be wonderful. So our text for this morning is not in Proverbs. We're going to begin a a series, not not a sermon series, but just an emphasis for the next three months on, as a church, looking for and hoping for and praying for fruitfulness. And uh, you'll see a lot more about that in community groups, and we've got people that are giving testimonies related to fruitfulness and so forth. And we'll, we'll be back in Proverbs next week, but for, for really the next three months or so, we will be really just wanting to underline and, and emphasize uh, the goal of being fruitful men and women of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to introduce that whole series of emphasis this morning with a special sermon from John chapter 15. And I'd like you to look to begin with at verse 11. I want you to imagine that you're living in China and you have absolutely no idea who Jesus is. You know, you're fully hooked up to the Marxist matrix. You're an atheist. You think the state is it. And you come across a sentence. And you have no idea who wrote this sentence or what it came from. And the sentence is what John 15, says. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full no context as to who said that and so that's one of the first things you'd maybe wonder is who said that and then the other thing is you really thought about the meaning of the sentence you'd be like well what did he say (laughs) I feel like I've got the 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 back end of the story here like I feel like I've been uh, told like hey I just told you the secret to happiness and I but I didn't get that message I just got the line that told me he told me well if you're if you're intrigued by that sentence, and you're this, you know, atheist, you've never heard the name of Jesus, you know nothing about the Bible, and you see that sentence, and you start to think, well, what could he have possibly said? What could this person possibly have said that leads to someone having joy, full joy? And you'd pull from your own cultural and experiential vocabulary You'd say, well, maybe he had something to say, like I hear often, that if I live and die for the state, I will have joy. You you try to figure it out. You try to suss it out as best you could, because everybody wants joy, and everybody has been told a variety of schemes in their life, no matter where they're from. They're like, if you do this, if you do it this way, this this is how joy will come to you. Now imagine, instead of being Chinese, you are living in New York City, but you also have absolutely no idea who Jesus is. I mean, you've heard the name. You certainly don't know anything about what he said. you don't never read anything he's written. Um, you're not even, you know, you're, you're John 3.16, ignorant, ignorant. You know, you're really just a clueless uh, Manhattanite with, uh, instead of this time, Marxism, let's say, humanism. And you come across the same verse, and all the same questions emerge. Who said this, and what did he say? that is supposed to lead to full joy, but you would import your experience into that. And you'd be like, well, maybe, maybe this person told me how amazing and beautiful I am. And so you're, you're importing your humanism in, instead of your Marxism. In, and you're like, well, that's what I've heard traditionally is the pathway to joy, um, self-esteem. So that's probably what this person said. So what you've got in John 15, 11, even structurally within the, the text itself is this is this really loaded statement. I have said these things, or these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And the word full there is like complete, filled up. It's a cup all the way to the fulling point. It's an animal that has achieved total maturity. You're like, well, what, what is that? What is it that leads to this fullness of joy? And it's probably not what you think it is who's speaking it's jesus and what did he say well look back at verse one what is jesus's program for our full joy what starts by this statement in verse one i am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser wow i feel joyful already How does that lead to joy? Well, that little statement leads to joy because it is the beginning of giving us a proper sense of our size and scope within the universe. It's beginning to give us indications that we are not the point. And realizing you are not the point is one of the most refreshing, relieving, joy-bringing realizations you can actually ever have. To be told by this person, I am the true vine, and vine signifies the root, the the, the trunk, the main thing, the main idea. I am the main idea. To be told that immediately removes us of the pressure of ourselves being the main idea, and people think they want that, and then they live in crippling anxiety because they think they are that. So already joy is is emerging from the, from the horizon with this first statement, I am the true vine. And Jesus had to say true there, presumably because lots of other things claim to be the true vine, the main source, the main brand, the main, uh, the headwaters, or so you will. But in addition to that, he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. What's happening here is that from from the very beginning of this conversation, Jesus is um, putting to death the number one enemy of joy in your life, and that is pride. And he's bringing to you sort of the entryway into real joy, which is humility. You're not the main thing. You're not the main actor in the story. You are a supporting character. Praise God. But then he goes even further and he says... The father, who we would traditionally associate as being this this absolute, uh, never-ending source of unconditional love, the father is the vine dresser. What is a vine dresser? Well, the vine dresser cares about one thing, fruit. That's what the vine dresser cares about, fruit. So... We're already getting close to getting to joy, but it doesn't really feel like it yet because we're getting ideas like, you're not the main thing, God is the main thing, and also, here's who God is. And I want to pause here for a minute and say, it is increasingly tempting amongst our our unrooted arrogance to recreate a God who seems nicer than the one who actually is and we think that that will give us more joy. This image of the Father being a ruthless, really appears that way, vine dresser is the kind of thing we would like to Photoshop out so that we get a nicer, lighter, easier-going God. And we think that if we do that, we'll get joy. Or we think if we present that God to the lost, they'll get joy. It's like, Jesus's program for joy starts by telling people you're not the main thing. And secondly, the father, he's a vine dresser and he cares about one thing, fruit. Are you producing fruit? Now look at the text as a whole from, say, verses one through six. Tell me if you think this feels like a modern pathway to joy. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is Jesus' pathway to total joy. You are not the main thing. The father is not the simpleton grandpa with the Worthers who loves everything and everybody that you make him out to be. He cares about fruit a lot. He does hard things in the lives of those that are bearing fruit so that they'll bear more fruit. He prunes them. And those who do not bear fruit, he cuts them off and casts them into the furnace. This is Jesus's pathway to joy. Now, for some... This extreme focus on fruitfulness does not feel like a pathway to joy. And that's because this is a beautiful meme illustration of how some regard the pursuit of fruitfulness. Um, This is weirdly attractive. Like this, this spread throughout the internet as a joke and then a ton of people found it and thought, the government has been hiding this all along. <laughs> the pathway to cheap transportation was there from the very beginning. We just need to, why, why, I bet you there was a company that made these, like in the 70s or something. And like some men in black showed up and killed the inventor. There's something at the popular mind, not engaging the frontal cortex all that much, that looks at that and says, well, it was this simple all along. But of course, there's nothing happening here that makes anything happen. That The physics are all wrong. And so for many Christians, they hear an extreme focus on fruitfulness as a disastrous plan for joy. And they will rewrite their entire faith to emphasize everything that Jesus is not saying here. They will rewrite this entire passage. I can't tell you the number of errors that flow out of people who essentially... The problem, can you go back to the illustration, the, the problem with this is it's, it's, it's rooted in low faith. You don't see God as doing anything for you. you. No matter what your theology, no matter how you articulate it, this is your functional reality. This is what you go to when someone says, do better. Do better to you is always a frustrating process of this. And so your low faith causes you to encounter the actual word of God and run. To the nearest Christian bookstore to find an author that tell you that that's not at all how God actually is it's like just so we're all clear as leaders of our homes just because it says crossway on it doesn't mean it's edifying so what we would do typically if I wanted to sell a book in particular to a lot of women is I would say that this I I would pick this apart and I would do whatever I could to remove Father as vine dresser from the imagery. Because if you're low faith and tangled up in a bunch of sins, as Paul describes in, in Timothy, you're, this is your experience right now in the Christian faith. Like, and it doesn't help, it doesn't sound like joy at all to be told, bear more fruit. But that's what Jesus is doing. And so we respond to this experience, and I've been here many, many times, been in low faith states where this is, this is what it actually is going on in my heart related to the call to bear fruit. We take a passage like this intended to produce joy and say, well, yeah, let me just rearrange things a little bit and maybe I can eke out a little joy here. So for instance, and it's sort of like, you know, photoshopping or, or filters, There are people who redefine fruitfulness. They redefine fruitfulness that Jesus is adamant about throughout the text to be mostly about internal sentiments and abstractions. My meaning well is fruit. But that doesn't hold up. We've left the Bible. We've started writing our own version of a pathway to joy because the fruitfulness described in this passage is stuff you do. In verse 5, it says, apart from me, you can do nothing, and the do there in the Greek is massively on the side of real-world accomplishments and outcomes. Do here, fruit here, is not sentiment, attitude, or even desire. Fruit is accomplishing real things in the real world in the name of Jesus Christ, but there's a tendency to Rearrange that because that sounds super hard and super antithetical to joy. Or they'll take a relatively small amount of faithfulness, or fruitfulness rather, and they will encourage one another by saying, oh, no, 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 I see fruit in your life. It's like, I see fruit in your life. Well, that's, that's wonderful. It's wonderful to see fruit. You know what the Father says when he sees fruit in your life? More fruit. That's actually what the text says. We're in the Bible now. We're actually in the Bible right now, and this is what the text says. The text says that when the Father looks at a branch that bears fruit, He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. There's another. There's all sorts of ways to twist all of this. It's. It's another one is to turn the word abide into the aim or the outcome that the goal is to abide, and that feels. That feels. Fair enough because I can make abide mean all sorts of things and we'll talk about that in a moment it's like no abide isn't the aim here what's the aim here fruit abide is how you get the fruit but abide isn't the aim or the outcome and there are plenty of people who have made abiding the sum total of their Christian life and in each one of these ways people are not being openly I've walked with people for years uh, with these things no one that I see is being openly defiant, openly defiant of God's word, openly rebellious. It's just we, like that poor Chinese person who found verse 11 or the, the, the humanist in, in Manhattan, we, we fill in the blanks with all of our platitudes and false gospels precisely because we do want to be happy. But then we were, if we were to really evaluate our lives and ask, we would not say, I have, at this stage of my life, full joy. It's like, well, let's go back to the original recipe. No twists and turns, no clever turns of phrases. Let's just go back to the original recipe. What was Jesus' plan for joy? Jesus' plan for joy was to tell us that we are not the main thing, and it's our job to produce fruit that comes from the main thing, and that the Father's interaction with us is, in some respects, about fruit. Another common error that flows out of this passage, we're going to be done with the errors after this, is, a, uh, is to turn the word abide into some kind of mystical state that only a few ever accomplish. And this is quietism. Um, piety pietism there's a bunch of formal names for this but sort of like this the way this one works is if we could only abide we could bear unlimited fruit the key is to figure out how to abide do you understand that that's not the kind of guy jesus is and here's what i mean by that jesus is not the kind of person to say here's the key you got to do this one thing. If you do this one thing, then th- everything else will work. That's definitely what he's saying in this text. Like you got to do this one thing. Jesus is not the kind of guy who says, "And by the way, good luck figuring the one thing out, because only a few people in the history of the world are ever going to get this right." Mm-hmm. It's highly mystical, highly esoteric. It's at the back of a cave somewhere in you know in the desert. That's not. Who, think about what you say about Jesus if you make the word abide out to be this highly evasive, esoteric concept. You may come out to be a bit of a trickster who says you can have all of this fruit, you can have all this joy, and it could be all these great things for you if you only do this one thing. What's that one thing only three people have ever experienced in the entire history of the world? And it was just like in this weird moment when their frequencies aligned, and they rested, and they let go and let God, and those are the people who know what abide means. No one else will ever know. That's not, that's not the, that is not the person of Jesus. Jesus doesn't do things that way. But more than that, verse 6, this is very troubling. If, if abide is this highly esoteric, mystical thing that you might stumble upon if you try really hard for a really long period of time, then we're all in deep trouble because verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Abide cannot be this rare, mystical thing we're all reaching for If that's what it is, we're all in deep trouble. We're all going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. Now, talking about what abiding is should simultaneously, should be like everything else in the Bible. You should be able to preach a sermon series on it. You should be able to preach a sermon on it. And you should be able to preach a sermon point on it. And if there's anything that exists in Christianity that can't be done that way, we're we're missing something. So I'm not going to tell you everything about abiding, but I will just tell you this. Abiding and obeying are very, very similar in this text. Abiding is not an esoteric mystical experience you'll find if you really, really, really try hard. Abiding looks a lot like obeying. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. One of the things that we've really got to be careful about in communicating Christianity is to oversimplify it to the degree that people have expectations that just never play out. And one of the things that, that you, you might you might accidentally do is you'd say, well, what's the pathway to joy? The pathway to joy is to embrace God's unconditional love. Do you realize there's not a single unconditional thing in this entire passage? We're, 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 out, of, we're out of Crossway. We're, we're, we're out of Ortland. We're, 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 not, we're in the Bible right now. Do you understand that? That there's not a single unconditional thing in Jesus's pathway to joy it's like I'm not systematizing I'm not telling you that that everything you need to know this is why you have to be careful everything you need to know about God is here wouldn't say that at all I would say that this is the text and Jesus said these things so that his joy would be in us and our joy would be full Abiding appears to be related to obedience, and it really is quite remarkable how little unconditional love language there is in a passage given by Jesus in which the express purpose of the passage is to produce joy. I don't think we, in our presuppositions, and our platitudes, would have predicted that. Everything here is actually highly conditional. Even verse 9, Jesus says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And when you start looking in the, the context of that, what he's really saying is, is in, I, the same deal I have with the Father, I'm making with you. And then he says it this way, I have kept my Father's commandments and therefore abide in his love. And Jesus says this elsewhere as well in John 10:17. for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Not unconditional in any respect. For for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now, mind you, again, I am not establishing a full-orbed, it's not my job in this particular text to do this, a full-orbed understanding of God, right? I'm just showing you what Jesus said as a pathway to joy. And what I would suggest is is that if you can't stand up under this and follow this path, but you have to jump into the platitudes of unconditionality all the time, you're not following the path. This is the path. A focus on fruitfulness. This is the path. All right. So, I want to from now put forward three reasons in the text why this makes total sense that it's the path. Why it makes total sense that a focus on fruitfulness is actually the pathway to joy. So there's something that Jordan Peterson wrote in his first well, second book uh, about skateboarders and outside of his college, I wanna read this to you. Uh, the The first reason, why, this is a hard message for me to preach just because it's it's so unconventional, and, and yet it's just so like the text, right? Um, so mind my even more than usual bumbling here. But the first point I would say that one of the reasons why we can see upon closer inspection that this is obviously the path is, is related to what you would maybe call finding out what you're made of. And... Uh, there, this, this is from Peterson's book. There was a time when kids skateboarding on the west side of Sydney Smith Hall at the University of Toronto where I work. Sometimes I stood there and watched them. They're rough, the, the, they are, there are rough, wide, shallow concrete steps there leading up from the street to the front entrance accompanied by tubular iron handrails about two and a half inches in diameter and 20 feet long. The crazy kids almost always boys would pull back about 15 yards from the top of the steps then they would place a foot on their boards skate like mad to get up some speed and just before they collided with the handrail they would reach down grab their board with a single hand and jump onto the top of the rail sliding their way down and sink propelling themselves off and land sometimes gracefully still atop their boards sometimes painfully off of them either way they were back at it soon afterward. Some might call that stupid. Maybe it was, but it was brave too. I thought those kids were amazing. I thought they deserved a pat on the back and some honest admiration. Of course it was dangerous. Danger was the point. They wanted to triumph over danger. They would have been safer in another environment. They would have been safer in protective equipment, but that would have ruined it. They weren't trying to be safe. They were trying to be competent. And it's competence that makes people as safe as they truly can be. So I just would modify and say, there is a part of you you can't know apart from danger. Completely agree with that. But that part of you that you'll get to know is Christ in you. Does that make sense? I would agree with Peterson up to the point where it's all about these boys. It's not. It's about Christ in us when we embrace difficulty and ardor. Uh, it's about, It's about. I guess this is the way you could say it is you're finding out something about yourself. And here's why I would promise you. This is the pathway to joy. Pursue fruit, hard fruit, dangerous fruit, risk necessitating fruit. And you will find out something about yourselves that will shock you. It will bless you. And it's not because of, a, it's not a self-esteem call. It's because what you'll find is Christ is in you. What you're going to find, keeping with the text, is the, the life of the vine is at work in my dumb little branch. This is, this is 50 times better than self-esteem. Did you know that Peter in 2 Peter 1, he makes a statement that is a thousand times better than self-esteem. And it sounds, it sounds sketchy, it's God's word. You are partakers of the divine nature. Well, how do you know that? Are, are you gonna find that out in the current low, fruitful focus of your life right now? Are you gonna discover these things about yourself from the couch, or do you have to be on a college parking lot? Jumping off of stairs, or the spiritual equivalent of that. Figuring out the amazing thing you've been given in Christ requires you to do somewhat sketchy, faith-necessitating things. Paul, Paul says it this way. He, he stops looking behind at this life he once had. He says, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward. Why, 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 why is the forward strenuous? Because it's unknown. You don't know what's there. You're moving into the dark. But he knows that at the end of it, he will have a prize. And that prize will be he will know Christ better. And he will know Christ better because he saw Christ work in his life. There's this poem that is delightful, uh, really tattoo-worthy in some respects. Uh, I'm not going to be one of those 50-year-old guys who just starts getting tattoos. I've already, I've already decided on that. but uh, the, the poem is, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And the person with the truck, with the magnet, that, that, that's their scheme for Christianity, all they hear is that mean old law, he told me to run. But once you just just even slightly accept Jesus made me a new person, you hear that same poem and you say, We get to fly? Do you see, you see the shift? The person who is tormented by low faith, constantly veering back into legalism, it's always about, you're telling me to do something and I can't do it. It's like, absolutely not. The, a better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel tells you to fly. Do you think you can fly? There is only one way to find out. When Jesus demands you to be fruitful, this is why high faithful, high fruitful is the correct pathway to joy. When Jesus demands you to be fruitful, he does so because he believes in your transformation from death into life in a way that you do not. Jesus demands you to be faithful and fruitful in the same way that when Jesus demands a cripple to rise and walk. He demands you to be fruitful in the same way he demanded Lazarus to come forth. No suggestions, no invitations. This is the way. Get up fly. When he says those things, he's not imagining you with a magnet attached to your truck. He knows what he has done for you, just as he knows that he has transformed the cripple's legs, removing all the atrophy, And just as he knows he has removed the death and decay from Lazarus' body, he knows when he tells you, be fruitful, he knows that he has paid the price to make it so. So rise and walk. And you will find out things about your faith you did not know. You knew conceptually because you read something or heard a sermon, but rise and walk, try to fly, and you will find out things about you you did not know. And you can't know. From the couch. Why does Paul say, with all of his energy, I work, I strain? Why does Paul say, I worked harder than anyone, but it wasn't me who Christ in me? Do you imagine how wonderful a feeling it is to catch yourself flying and realize it is Jesus causing that to take place? There are two kinds of people in the world, I suppose. Those who think Peter was dumb and those who think Peter was cool when he said, I'd like to walk on the water, please. And you need to ask yourself if you are so prideful and so worshipful of your own perfection and flawless record that you wouldn't take one minute of water walking in exchange for being the guy who sinks. If some of you are so type A, you are on the back of that boat, and there is no way unless you are promised you can walk across the whole ocean, you will try to take even a step in the miraculous and independent. It has to be no failure for me. You are a branch, you are not the vine. Jesus knows that when he saved you, he restored you back to your fundamental pre-fall humanity And that the fundamental programming of a man and a woman prior to sin was to be fruitful. And when he commands you to be fruitful, he's saying, I paid for you. I paid for you to be free from the curse of sin, to be free from the corruption of Adam and Eve I've paid for you to be the kind of person you were created to be, to rule, subdue, be fruitful and multiply. I'm making family t-shirts for us this Christmas. And the family t-shirts, not to let the cat out of the bag, but the family t-shirts say, I came here to chew bubble gum and rule and subdue, and I'm all out of bubble gum. There's nothing arrogant about that if it is Christ in you working and willing according to his good purpose. So when Jesus commands you to be fruitful, he knows he has made you into, as they would say in Narnia, descendants of Lady Adam and Lord Eve. And he also knows he has freed you from the sin of idolatry. And that just by that bare minimum, you have tons more time on your hands because no Christian is just running around chasing and serving a million idols. So you have tons more margin now. You're not slave to idols. Idols demand a lot of time and energy and money. And surely you have none of those. And so when he calls you to be fruitful, it's like you've got tons of time and money and energy because you're not worshiping idols anymore. And he says, uh, you know, in addition to freeing you from idols, I've freed you from the fear of man. So you surely wouldn't, just like be running around doing things to please people you surely wouldn't be spending all of your precious life energy doing that surely you would be only listening to me so he's like rise up and be fruitful because now you have a ton of energy because you don't have to please everybody just please me he knows that he has given you all you need for life and godliness and so the command to be fruitful is his precious gift to you And like those skateboarders in Toronto, there are things that you will learn about who you are in Christ that you can only learn with risk, blood, sweat, and tears. That's number one. Number two, you will find a camaraderie with the very best kinds of brothers and sisters. Friendship is a major theme in this passage. Good friendships are definitely joy-bringing. And I want to show you how a focus on fruitfulness is the basic tone setter of a healthy human relationship. A focus on serving and fruitfulness is the relational cement you're looking for in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with other brothers and sisters. As long as we are all cats pursuing our own highly individualized preferences. We do not know what friendship is. We don't know what romance is. We don't even know what parenting is. But as soon as we start thinking like a group of dogs, let's say. It's highly, highly not kosher, but those are, uh, no. Uh, dog, let's, as soon as we start acting like like a group of things, people, pursuing the same end, suddenly, Friendships are completely different. As many of you know, I've been married for 27 years. I got married when I was uh, 19, and uh, my wife and I did not have any personality tests or anything like that to know that we were absolutely, completely polar opposites in every respect. And we also, at 19, lacked the frontal cortex to know that that would matter. (laughs) And yet, my wife is easily, hands down, my best friend not even, there's no question about it. And for 27 years, we have chewed bubble gum and ruled and subdued. We, we have a lot of Viking blood in our family. I'm basically hundred percent. She's, she's half Swedish, half Swedish, half Spanish. So she wants to storm beaches and lay on them. (laughs) But let me just tell you something at the, 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 the summary of evaluation of Your friendship should be, how many castles have we stormed? How many dragons have we slayed? How many princesses have we rescued? Whatever your social unit, measure it that way. The evaluation of a social unit is its fruitfulness, what it produces. You want a good marriage? Storm the castles together. You know, in all of the years of ministry, I've been a pastor for a very long time, almost as long as we've been married. I would tell you that even to this day, we do about 80% of our ministry together. And right now, it's probably that's probably it's probably the lowest it's ever been in terms of together. If you will commit to serving others with your friendship unit, with your social unit, if you will find a group of people and pursue fruitfulness, oh my goodness, that's where all of the best friendships are. That's where all of the camaraderie really lies around the cause of Christ this section of scripture that we're proceeding to now which is post uh, 11 like it, it's essentially bookended with Jesus's concerns about the apostles friendships in verse 13 he says no greater love has uh, uh, greater love has no one than that someone lay down his life for his friend in verse 17 these things I command you so that you will love one another and, and verse 17 is very similar to verse 11. There's this, like, I've said these things so that this is the outcome. Verse 11, the outcome is joy. Verse 17, the outcome is loving one another. And I would suggest to you that those are very overlappy. That one of the greatest sources of joy you can have in this world is to walk with a tribe of people that you love and love well and, are, and that they love you well. How do you love one another? This is, this is I think, So essential. How do you love one another? Here's the answer to that question. I pray that we're not too far in the message where I've lost your attention. How do we love one another? We love one another by helping one another become more fruitful. And if that's true, then we suddenly understand the Father as the vine dresser. And we understand Jesus as the vine, and we understand the whole front section of the passage that that it is entirely compatible with his great love for us that he calls us to be fruitful. Is that true, okay? Is it true that love means helping someone be fruitful? Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Why did Jesus lay down his life for us? Verse 16. Why did Jesus lay down his life for us? you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why did Jesus save us? Jesus says in verse 16, I saved you completely of free grace, no works. This is a mirror of Ephesians 2. I saved you with complete grace, no works, no one's boasting, and now get to work. Why? Are works incidental to salvation? No, 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 no. This is the experience he bought for you, to be fruitful. And so, yes, it is indeed true. Loving someone means helping them become fruitful. That's what loving someone is. This, this, this could change everything for people if they saw this. Loving someone is helping them to become fruitful. It would crush the the. the, the False complementarianism that exists, which is essentially like, you tell me what you'd like to do, and I'll say yes as your leader. (laughs) And it would be like, no, no, no. I want my wife to be fruitful. How do I help her do that? Okay, so helping someone be fruitful is love. Now, this is shocking. How do we help them be fruitful? We lay down our lives for them. How do we help someone be fruitful? We lay down our lives for them. Now, if you start laying down your life without any expectation of fruitfulness, you have missed it. You've entered into a therapeutic, empathy first error. You don't lay down your life just because. You're not patient just because. You're not understanding just because. You're not generous just because. You're doing those things, you're deferring self, you're putting self down, you're dying to self with one expectation, as described here and described in Ephesians 5, to help the other person be who they are called to be in Christ. To remove every rot, or every every wrinkle, every line, every blemish, and so forth. So, so patience and generosity and kindness without any call for fruit, that's not love. And I would encourage you to just just really question, am I laying down my life to help other people be fruitful? Because that seems to be not only the obvious plan of God, but an obvious pathway to joy. Jesus endured the cross, forsaking its shame for the joy set before him. And what is the joy set before him? Well, there's lots of joy set before him, but one is to say, I'm going to make so many people fruitful. I'm going to redeem Chris Oswald out of his pagan darkness, and I'm going to give him a new heart, and I'm going to help him to love people and to serve and so on and so forth, and he's going to bear fruit. There's so much joy in helping someone become fruitful, and this must be the why behind our service to one another. Never trust anyone who says all of the words like uh, unconditionality and patience and so forth without any expectation on the back end. That is not biblical love. Biblical love is I lay down my life for you so that you can be freed from sin. You can be full of grace you can operate in, in the joy of serving others and so on and so forth. And so the third thing, really quickly. I'm suggesting that the pathway to joy is indeed a focus on fruitfulness. You're going to find out things about yourself. You're going to find friends you didn't know that you ever needed. And you're going to imagine, like, I can't live without them. And third, you're going to find a friendship with God that you did not know you didn't have. so that you will love one another now a whole key to this passage is as i said jesus's restoration of us to, to to our state as rulers and subduers if i were to ask you what does it mean to have a relationship with god where would your biblical answer flow from i'm not looking for a platitude i'm What's the biblical answer to having a relationship with God? I would submit to you that the answer to that question always involves doing stuff with God. All the way from Eden forward. To walk with God does not mean a highly sentimental, purely spiritual abstraction. It means to do stuff with God. And when you see in the scriptures people referred to as friends of God, these were not tea time with Jesus types. They were doers. Out in the real world, ruling and subduing. And so what you'll find in, in, as, you, as you enter into this and say, okay, this is what Jesus says is the pathway to joy. I'm going to focus on fruit. I'm going to really try over the next three months to just pray that God make my life more fruitful that I do a better job of being joyfully generous, faithfully generous with my time and talents and treasures and all that kind of stuff. And you start walking down this pathway, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that there, there are things you had knowledge about with God that you did not actually know. You, you, you had a category, you had a title, but you did not know the thing. There's a, a man in, in missions history, maybe the man in missions history or one of them, William Carey. And he is well known for saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And this man's life was full of risk and suffering and so on and so forth. Uh, So let's have William Carey, and we'll set him next to a man named William Barely. And his motto is, expect medium things from God and attempt medium things for God. Okay, so we've got expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And then we've got Mr. Barely over here, and it's, Attempt medium things, expect medium things from God, attempt medium things for God. I, I just want to, just so we're all clear, like we don't want to leave this room unless we understand, like William Carey knows God better as a consequence of the life he has chosen. William barely knows God less. This is, this is why a focus on fruitfulness is indeed the pathway to joy because it leads people to see God more clearly in a way they did not know. They could. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson wrote a commission letter to a man who worked for him named Meriwether Lewis. And the letter begins something like this. Since you work for me as a kind of secretary, you know full well that I just bought a massive amount of land from from the French. That's my paraphrase. And then he says something to this effect. Assemble a team and explore it. Take careful instrument readings. I want longitudes and latitudes, and I want compass and thermometer readings, and I want detailed journals and sketches. I want to know everything. Now your main assignment is to figure out a waterway to the Pacific, but I also want to know about all the indigenous people out there and all the flora and the fauna and so on and so forth. Take detailed notes. Take as much money and time as you need. I want this done well. That's the summary of the letter. And they started off in St. Louis. Have you ever been to St. Louis? I don't think even at that point it was a very auspicious place. I think at that point, even back then, St. Louis would not feel to be an extremely majestic overwhelming. It would not be indicative of the adventure that they were called to, correct? They were starting in a shallow river in the middle of America. And then imagine this. They go through miles and miles of faithful obedience to their commission, and they come across images like what I hope are on the screen right now, images like this. This is why a focus on fruitfulness is the pathway to joy. It doesn't feel like it at the beginning, and then you find God looks like this, and you can't know God is like this unless you go through the blood, the sweat, the tears, the questions, the risks. you got to be William Carey to know the God like this, not William Barely. There are things you need to know about God that can only be known when you and I focus on fruitfulness. I get a sense of what the gospel actually means for me and what it's really done for me. I get to walk with people who are like me, trying trying to be fruitful. Even people who will lay down their lives and their preferences and their treasure and their time to help me be fruitful. And I get to do the same for others. And I get to know God in a way I could not know him unless I was deep in the backcountry in the places where very few people are willing to go and that is why when jesus says in john 15 11, i have said these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full that is why a focus on fruitfulness is the pathway to joy and so over the next three months our heart focus as a people as a community of believers is to say yes and amen to that, is to say, yes, Lord, you've said it. We believe it. Let us strain toward the goal. Let us embrace a fruitfulness focus and trust you. We're all fruit. We're all fruit of what the Bible describes as the firstborn or the firstfruits of all creation. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus, we, we are a byproduct of Jesus. We, we are connected to him. His life flows through us. And as we pivot to the Lord's table, that's what we are thinking about when we participate in the Lord's table. That his, as we abide in the vine, his Christ life moves through us and manifests fruit in our lives. So if you're a follower of Jesus, and you've trusted that he did choose you and appointed you to bear fruit, if you're on board with that, would you come and participate in the Lord's table, celebrating what Jesus has done by offering himself for our sake? Let me pray for us, and then I'll ask you to come.